welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. So hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. So we are super excited because this is the first of a couple episodes that we are doing in collaboration with the Journal for Music Theory Pedagogy. We were able to work with them last fall on interviewing some of the authors of some of the upcoming uh, articles that are coming out in the 2022 uh, volume and so we are doing that again for some articles that are coming out in the 23 journal issue and so we are super stoked to talk about some reviews that are going to be included um, and edited by Dr. Melissa Hogue but before we get into that conversation I do want to mention what is the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy what is that do you know what that is Jen <laughs> Hmm. Well, <laughs> the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy is an online uh, peer-reviewed journal resource for people who are interested in how you teach music theory and oral skills. Is I that did a not definition? I did not prep you at all, and you did an amazing <laughs> job. I just threw that at you, and you, I could have sworn you read that. Um, <laughs> that's right. It is a peer-reviewed journal that um, has all sorts of great resources for how to teach music theory, RL skills has a wonderful online component where you can search and find past articles all for free. There's no paywall. Mm -hmm. So it's open to anyone who wants to learn more about uh, effective teaching in music theory. So we're so excited to work uh, with them again. And please, please check out uh, their latest issue that's coming out in 2023 and then the past issues as well. So let's get into our conversation, but first let's talk a little bit about our special guest, Dr. Melissa Hogue. So Jen, tell us a little bit about her. Absolutely. So Melissa Hogue is an associate professor of music theory at Oakland University, which is in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And there she teaches music theory and oral skills, and she also coordinates the music theory area. Her publications have recently appeared in the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, which was edited by Lee Van Handel. We talked about that one on our very own podcast here. Um, also, Bach, the journal of the Riemann Schneider Bach Institute, Music Theory Online, Engaging Students, Essays in Music Pedagogy, the Dutch Journal of Music Theory, Gamut, the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, Music Theory Pedagogy Online, and the College Music Symposium. She's been very busy. You'll learn that when you listen to us talk, too. Um, she's also been involved at multiple levels with the College Board's Advanced Placement Exam in Music Theory since 2007, so for quite some time. And we just really had a lot of fun talking to Melissa. It's a really great conversation. I think I say that every time, but it is always true. So there you go. It is Stay always tuned. true. <laughs> it is. Any good theory teacher knows the only absolute is to never say always and never say never. Like, that's, that's like the only absolute of teaching music theory and studying music is that there's only usuallys and mostly nevers but nothing absolute. So Melissa, we are so happy to have you on the podcast to talk with you um, about the 
upcoming reviews that are going to be in the latest issue of the JMTP. We're so excited to be collaborating with them again on a couple episodes um, and also talking with you about your work um, on another project. And we won't say it just yet, so people have to keep listening. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about um, how you got into music theory, how you got to be where you are. And so, you know, was it that theory one class where you're doing that part writing exercise and that moment you like resolve the chordal seventh down <laughs> and the leading tone up to create that PAC. Was it like this, this is what I want to be doing the rest of my life. Um, was it some type of moment like that or maybe something else? Uh, that's very funny. Um, Cause I just taught that to my <laughs> first year students yesterday and today. So we were just discussing the, um, why you have to have an incomplete 5-7 or an incomplete tonic if you have the leading tone in the soprano and all that. So anyway, yeah. um, (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited to do this interview. And um, so how did I get into theory? So um, piano was my instrument. And I kind of knew when I went to... to major in music at Drake University, which is, um, side note, also where Stan Kleppinger did his undergraduate, although he's older than me, so I didn't know him there. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, you know, um, knew I really um, liked performing, but I kind of knew I didn't really want to teach piano. I taught piano even in high school you know to like younger kids and stuff like that but I knew I wanted to major in music and so um for me it was um several things so secondary dominant day was a big day for me I was like (laughs) oh my god that's why D major sounds so cool in the key of C and it, it like I just loved I just thought that was the coolest thing ever uh understanding how secondary dominance worked And then the other thing was realizing how much I liked all kinds of music and not just music that had piano in it. Mm. Um, So realizing that I could find ways to teach all of the music that I loved, like opera and string quartets and art songs and symphonies uh, without having to... You know, I I didn't need to stick to just something that had piano in it to work with a student or whatever or or perform. And um, I just really loved my theory teachers and thought they were like amazing, funny, you know, clever people. And And we are. And we are. Right. I wanted to be them when I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much what did it. Yeah, I just I wanted to be them when I grew up, you know. So it wasn't too far off. It was theory two and secondary dominance when you were raising the leading tone and following yeah. the chordal seven. The temporary leading tone. That's right. The temporary yeah. leading tone. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, and that's that's so awesome. Uh, it's so. I mean, we hear that all the time. It's like that theory teacher, that mentor, that's, mm-hmm. that turns that light on for us, that gets us excited about it, and that should inspire us, right? As we're working with our students um, in the future, sure. So you are here to talk specifically about 
what uh, you have been doing with the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, and you're the review editor. And so there are a number of really fascinating reviews that are coming out. And so we thought it'd be fun to kind of chat about these. And so maybe you can give us, we can start with whichever one you want to talk about, but maybe give us a little like amuse-bouche. So a little taste <laughs> for, you know, what these reviews are about so that when it comes out in uh, the new year, people are like, oh, I got to gotta make sure I find out more about this text or things like that. And certainly this could help with people's Christmas wish lists, you know, that you <laughs> know, if you're wanting to get some new books, I'm like, oh, I, want, I definitely want to add this to my Amazon wish list. So uh, we can start with, with everyone you'd like to, but uh, let's kind of chat about those. Yes, for sure. This is sort of um, our little holiday wish list, you know, <laughs> listicle or whatever. Um, so we have four reviews coming out, as you mentioned. Um, one of them is multi-author. Uh, it's a, a big, big review. Um, I have it open right now looking at it. It's 53 pages. <laughs> And um, it's on aural skills. And so it it looks at all of the available resources that are kind of like the more, more commonly used resources. So it's not absolutely everything you might find if you like Google aural skills textbooks or apps or anything like that. Um, but it, it goes over, um, you know, like sight singing books, um, more general kind of aural skills textbooks that are a little bit more holistic. Uh, it goes over apps and software and things like that. So, um, and then by the end of the review, they kind of take a step back. And I, I should mention too, I'm sorry, the authors are Stacy Davis, Tim Chinette, and Stan Kleppinger. So, um, and they really did such an amazing job on this review. I mean, it was an absolute Herculean effort that mm -hmm. they they undertook this and they went really beyond. It's more of a review article, you know. Uh, they go, you know, because of course, Stacy has the cognitive science um, research specialty and so they really go at this in so many different directions. And then at the end, they kind of, as I said, they take a step back and they say, you know, when we teach our own skills, are we getting the outcomes that we really need to get from our students? And and they have this list, and I'll see if I can scroll through. It's going to take me a minute to scroll through the end of this thing. Um, but they have a list of things that we probably actually want students to be able to do. And it's probably not notate eight bar melodies without any context. Um, and so they have <laughs> they have this wonderful list. Um, we're probably more interested in skills like identifying errors in an ensemble rehearsal, improvising an accompaniment to a requested song from a music therapy patient, identifying and leaning into expressive moments like a chromatic harmony, Imagining how notated music sounds, transcribing jazz solos to understand how someone improvises, and listening more holistically. So, um, so they also take a kind of critical view of the field as a whole. And um, that's really, I mean, like I said, it, it really goes beyond just like a textbook review. And um, 
we had not had a review, like a holistic review of oral skills. Um, I When I decided what reviews to solicit, I looked back through all of the reviews from the journal back to its inception. And I'm not sure we ever had a review that kind of looked at all of the available um, resources the way this one does. So um, highly recommend anyone who's teaching oral skills to read this and just um, let it um, inspire you to to, you know, choose the resources that work best for your institution and your students and your institution's goals, but also to, you know, think beyond and think bigger and think more creatively about what oral skills are and what what we really want students to be able to do. So I highly recommend that one. So then we also had, um, uh, let's see, a review by Michael Baker of Timothy Cutler's Bending the Rules of Music Theory. And uh, this is a book I really want to read. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to buy it and get it from my university library because it's the kind of stuff that, I mean, for me, like, so when I teach an upper level class, especially my form and analysis class, where we really get into the weeds, like we'll take like a big piece, like, I, you know, like four movements of the Brahms Requiem, and we really get in there. And yes. <laughs> Ben's um, got a copy already. <laughs> Ben's got it. He's holding up a copy right now. Yes. And um, I always say that Foreman Analysis, which is an upper level elective at my school, um, it should be t subtitled Lies My Theory Teacher Told Me, you know? Mm -hmm. Because, oh, you know, they're like, oh, how could he possibly go five to two to five? I'm like, well, <laughs> when we say don't go five to two, we just mean in like most of the time, you know? <laughs> and like, right. and, and I just said this morning to my students because we were, t we were looking at a Clara Schumann song and it went uh, two to four. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, you told me, and or you told us that 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 can't happen. I said, I did not say it can't happen. I said, it usually doesn't. And I said, any good theory teacher knows the only absolute is to never say always and never say never. Like that's, that's <laughs> mm -hmm. like the only absolute of teaching music theory and studying mm -hmm. music is that there's only usuallys and mostly nevers, but nothing absolute. And so that's really what this book uh, talks about. And I love how, Mike Baker um, begins by invoking the common joke among music students that Bach kills a kitten every time someone writes parallel fifths. <laughs> and um, he comes back to that at the end and he said, maybe we should revise that and say, every time someone writes a set of good apparent parallel fifths, Bach pets a kitten. Um, which, which, which is a very nice way to uh, come full circle by the end of the review. But he does a really great, Michael looks at this book and does such a wonderful job of taking the reader through some of the main ideas and also explaining the title, Lessons from Great Composers, which is the subtitle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because right now it kind of, 
might raise some eyebrows like, oh, that's kind of dated language, you know, like, what is this about, you know, great composers? Aren't we kind mm -hmm. of getting away from that? But, but, you know, the way Mike explains it in the review, it's that you don't really have to look hard. You don't have to go into these less well-known composers to find these bent rules. You know, mm -hmm. every composer does these things. It's just they don't do them all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, and so he does such a wonderful job of explaining that. Yeah, I was. I'm really excited about this book because I, I, it's. I you speak to exactly the student's problem with they think that these are absolutes and you're lying or deceiving us when you later on find out and you know it's these great composers you know great in air quotes aren't great because they always follow the rules like that does not make you know a, a composer great at all right um, and and the the author of the book who's Timothy Cutler. Um, he's also the, the uh, guy who created the Internet Music Theory Database, which yeah. I've used many times, which is like Absolutely. this vast, vast database of musical examples. And so like he I'm sure in his uncovering of all of these things, like found all of these mm -hmm. things. Oh, Brahms did this strange thing or Bach did this thing. And so putting them aside and now he's able to kind of create this book years later after combing through so many musical examples to create this database, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's pretty much what he's doing. And so he has these just really interesting categories of types of bent rules. And I just... Uh, it's right up the theorists alley. I mean, really like, it's like fun reading for us. And then um, a good source of interesting examples for students too. You know, like if you're like, yes, Bach does sometimes write these certain kinds of parallel fifths, you know, or, you know, this certain weird situation with a cadential six, four does happen. And this is a good way to kind of look at a book like that and say, here's a perfect example of when he did this and why it's why it's okay in this situation, you know? I also reviewed a review and partially edited a review of this um, text. And I did, I confess, I did raise a brow, just like you said with the mm -hmm. great composer's remark. And I have to say, I agree with the premises and I like the, the perspective, but then you know, to me, to be to be honest, and I would tell this to to Tim, the examples in here still really don't get beyond traditional Western mm -hmm. quote unquote great composers. So you know, right. even though you know, I'm sure Michael Baker in the review maybe talks about this, um, mm -hmm. and when we get get into more of that. Maybe it comes up, but I think there are some real strengths to this book, but there are certainly some weaknesses that go alongside. For sure. It. Yeah. And I had the same raised brow and I yeah. even said like, oh, we better, we better think about this because like, you know, that subtitle. And he said, well, you know, would we really like it if he spent so much time going and finding these examples of oddities in Clara Schumann or in, you know, some of these less well-known composers, especially members of historically underrepresented groups. Because then someone might come away with the idea, well, of course she wrote, 
she broke some of these rules. Right, She's right, a woman right. composer. And right. when Michael careful, put it right. like, yeah, when Michael put it like that to me, I thought, you know, that really does make sense that, right. you know, because they are an, um, an aberration among the f- field of composers from the time, um, we wouldn't want to create some sort of false link in the mind of the reader. Like, well, of course they wrote aberrations. Like, they made these, you know, errors in their music because, well, it was one of the only black composers in the 19th century. So, of course he wrote, um, Mm. you know, weird chord progressions or so you know right i would think a false line of thinking and yeah exactly and so like when michael explained it like that to me because we did actually have a conversation about that and um i just thought that really made a lot of sense and resonated with me and i thought you know that's that that makes sense to me yeah Yeah. um because i certainly agree with the representation issues and everything else. Right, right. I can yeah, there are always a lot of perspectives on it. Yeah. But from a certain sure. sense, if you take a group that is traditionally overrepresented and you say, well, even here, exactly. we're bending yeah. the rules. I mean, maybe that is part of the premise that Cutler intended to put in here. And if so, yeah. so be it, right? I, you know, I guess so be it at that point. Yeah, so, you know, I, I definitely am with you. I had the same raised eyebrow, but um, I thought that actually did make sense once I once he explained it, his view of it to me, at least. Um, so, um, so, of course, then we have Ali Wente, who reviewed two um, post-tonal texts, one of which is the new edition for um, Miguel Roeg Francoli's uh, Understanding Post-Tonal Music, and then a new book by Joe Strauss, The Art of Post-Tonal Analysis. And he has 33 graphic music analyses, um, which of course echoes um, Schenker's five graphic music analyses. I don't know if that's intended or not. He doesn't mention it, but it it certainly echoes that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she does um, most spends more of the review on the Roeg Franco Lee because of the um, the fact that that's a standalone text. Um, I um, I came away really intrigued by the uh, the Strauss though. Um, I think partially because it's a new a new book that I haven't seen yet that I haven't gotten a chance to read yet. But um, but there's um a lot of nuance available in both. The Roeg Franco Lee could probably have more diversity, um, but there is some. Um, I feel like uh, the the Strauss has quite a bit of diversity. Um, we have quite a few examples by LGBTQ um, women composers and composers of other um, underrepresented groups. But it would be nice to see some of the featured analyses in the Roeg Francoli um, maybe be a bit more um, broad. Um, but the Art of Post-Tonal Analysis book is really more of a uh, supplement. So if you're teaching like a grad class or you're teaching like a um, 
upper level undergraduate class where students have already had some of the basic concepts, it would be nice to like assign some of these as presentations or something like that. Have the students really talk through and explain what's happening in the analysis. Um, that's something I'm thinking about doing with some of my more advanced students. I think it's useful to to just see the way people analyze that music because so much of it has to be approached kind of individually. So, you know, many students in Theory 4 are so frustrated because for three semesters we've been like, here are some Roman numerals, some lead sheet symbols, some whatever that will work every time, mostly, you know, and then they get to Theory 4 and it's like, well, it depends on the piece and it depends on the composer and it depends on when it was written and it depends. So, you know, I appreciate just kind of seeing someone take a singular approach to a couple of different pieces of music. I think that's valuable. And like you said, could be useful for upper level students to see what 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 that results in what can you see there what can you find in terms of continuity my thought was just that uh on one of the on the older strauss the introduction to post-tonal theory i think it was the fourth edition a lot of people that i've talked to just at conferences and things thought that the part in the back of the book with the i think it's called guided analyses or something they thought that was one of the real strengths of the book Mm-hmm. And probably it seems to me maybe Strauss got that opinion from colleagues and things and then decided to kind of run with that idea more and then do more of that kind of thing, um, which is good, I think. Yeah, there's um, something he says, and I don't remember which edition. It may be in all the editions, but he says something like when one is looking at post-tonal music, you really have to. And the, the line I always remember is, enter the world of the peace. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's something I, I always tell students that. And I actually tell them that with tonal pieces too. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know there's the, the normal expectations if you're looking at a piece by whoever, somebody in the 20th century. You know, you know the composer, you know kind of the kinds of pieces they've written. But every individual piece has its it's various games and it's various issues and motives and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I'm very excited to be able to um, use some of those analyses uh, for sure in um, my upper level class. Uh, let's see here. Oh, right. Of course. Then we have David Castro reviewing the Rutledge Companion to Arl Skills Pedagogy, which is edited by Kent Cleland and Paul Fleet. And so this is a pretty new book. It was just um, published last year. This is um, a kind of a more typical review. It's over, you know, on a single book. It's a, a nice, concise summary of most chapters. And it just gives the reader um, a chance to get some of the big ideas from the volume. I think David did an outstanding job on this review. Uh, there's, you know, um, it's clear that there's a good an amount of representation in terms of just the kinds of pedagogical approaches one will typically use in a classroom. I think, obviously, because I solicited it, I think it's worth your time to read it. Um, <laughs> And he does identify also, like the other RL Skills review I mentioned, he does identify some things that uh, are kind of lacking 
um, not only in the collection, but also in the in the field as a whole. Like, where are the good, solid theories and pedagogies of melody? Uh, can we talk about scale degree without relating it to harmony? We need pedagogy of melodic contour and um, some of those issues. Um, there's a tendency, he says, to juxtapose common practice aural skills against pop rock aural skills, mm -hmm. which is a kind of an interesting thing that will become maybe less common as time passes. Yeah, I was, I, as I was reading this review, it was just um, each chapter is written by one or two other authors, and it's kind of like a an all-star cast in a way mm -hmm. of, oh, like, oh, this person, this, and it's really, um, you know, people that are in, in teaching oral skills and have voices in there. And so I'm excited to kind of dig into each of those chapters on those different topics, as you said, because each one is kind of addressing um, different things, though it is interesting. I think he mentions in the review how um, a couple of the authors in the, in the, in the, the text, define aural skills or feel the need to define aural skills in the first place. And I think he says something to the effect of, you know, you never read a book on uh, like uh, chemistry and yeah. then, like, <laughs> you, you need to define what chemistry is at the beginning. Um, and so there is a, still this very kind of fuzziness or uh, squishiness about aural skills, even what it is. We have a hard time even coming to terms with what, what that is because there are so many skills involved. And I think that's one of the things that you see with both of, both of the reviews of the Rutledge Companion and of the Critical Review is aural skills is a, it's a beast. You know, all of the things that go into that and you only have twice a week, 50 minutes a day, um, to teach these students and what do you do? Um, you have to do more than dictation and sightseeing clearly, but what is it, right? And so I think these reviews and then and then the the text, the Rutledge Command to Oral Skills Pedagogy, I think is gonna be a great resource in trying to think about these big things. Yeah, and of course, you know, the students register for one credit. <laughs> right. It's I a mean, one credit class, right. Uh-huh. And they're all ready doing more than one credit worth just by showing up. Mm -hmm. And then of course, every instructor is like, you can't just show up, you have to practice. Like if mm -hmm. you want to improve your oral skills and pass the class, you have to practice. So, you know, I mean, that's, I know that's, I think every music program I've ever heard of has that setup where it's one credit registered, but then they show up for two hours. So they already feel like, you know, they're getting their money's worth. You mean, right? That's, that's exactly <laughs> how I explain it. I'm like, you guys, this is a really good value. Look at all you're getting for the price of just one credit. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> one thing that maybe I can ask you, Melissa, or you can maybe speak to based on the, the depth um, with which you've engaged these reviews. Sometimes one of the conversations that I've had a lot of times, whether it's with uh, teaching fellows or whether it's with my colleagues or whether it's people outside at conferences, is what is our source material for oral skills? Is it a software? Is that enough material? Is it stuff that you create yourself? Do you go to your colleagues and say, hey, uh, trombone professor, will you record this melody two times? One time, play it wrongly, okay, and pick a few spots to miss. 
you know, do you go to a, a choir and have them sing this and say, you're going to miss the third note in the third measure, and then that becomes like your content? Or is it that you use a textbook, and then, you know, if you use a textbook and you say, well, now my materials are limited to sight singing numbers 1 through 20 and dictations numbers 1 through 20, and if I want to do anything outside of that, I'm going to be back to choice 2, which is to create the whole thing myself in the first place. Mm-hmm. Could you possibly, I have a feeling this is a thought that's entering people's minds and I, it's definitely been in my head for a while and I get to a point where I get to a software where I really like and say, oh my goodness, I like this software, we should, we should try that out. Maybe this, is the, maybe this is the holy grail of oral skills and I can get rid of the sight singing book and I can not have to generate all these dictations. But then there are always issues, it's missing something and you have to combine. <laughs> You know, so what, what is it? What is the, what is the solution? Maybe there isn't one, or maybe you can speak to some of that. I don't know. It's a hard question. Sorry, it's a doozy of a question. I don't know if any of us have a good answer. I mean, I know that what we do is, you know, we have the Ottman Rogers. Yep. We have have the Kizzee's Rhythm book Mm -hmm. because it is actually a textbook. Like it, actually teaches rhythm it's not just like here's a bunch of rhythm examples you know and um we have a course pack okay and we write all kinds of short little projects that are like contextual listening and you know again for error detection it's typically like if it's something quick we'll just say like you know here's a melody practice it in your head. Now we're going to make six mistakes, pitch mistakes, you know, depending on like the level of the students and stuff like that. And um, that's kind of what we do, you know, I mean, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of things. And I really fervently, fervently believe in the value of the contextual listening aspect, because it's like, you can bring in a lot of different kinds of pieces and you know it's too bad that i mean it's it's great but it's also too bad that now there's all this software that can identify every piece which i learned i'm going to mention stan kleppinger for the third time today (laughs) um he he said oh here's how i get around students using shazam or whatever is i just go into like you know some audio editing app and just detune it or tune Mm. it up by like just a little bit and then it Uh, won't recognize it anymore, mm. which I do use, but it still sounds just a little funny, but at least I know they're not going to like look it up and, and just make it easy on themselves. Although I have to say they, they still don't even really do that. You know, it's it's not as simple as like looking up the score. Cause I mean, if it's in a different key than the score or what, I mean, mm. yeah, it never seems to make things as easy as I think it will if they can identify the piece. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, ideally we would spend all of our time doing contextual listening and stuff like that, you know, right. but I also know they need more focused work on melody focused work on harmonic progressions that are gonna do the things that we need them to do you know like i don't know how about you guys but we introduce kind of like we do in theory like 
you know, the basic phrase model, and then you start expanding that a little bit. So you don't want to give them examples with too much hard stuff because they, mm-hmm. that way they can, but then we go into the, what are the true oral skills and should oral skills be in the service of theory? Like the yeah, Tim Chinette right. yep. um, work. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of doing my best from day to day. Like I know everybody else is and mm-hmm. well, and too often heavy sigh, right? Too often the people teaching oral skills are um, contingent faculty too. They're, they're oh, adjunct yes. professors or they're teaching fellows. I mean, that's how I got my start was a teaching fellow at UNT and I taught oral skills pretty much exclusively until I'd been there a little bit. So uh, then on top of that, you have a population that's already like working too hard for probably too little pay. I mean, that's just absolutely kind of a fact. So yeah, um, it's the class most readily farmed out to whoever. Right. And I mean, the know, thing is, and- I love teaching it. And I mm-hmm. try to put myself on oral skills classes whenever I can. But I'm also one of the only people who can teach most of our upper level electives um, for our theory major. So anytime we're offering those, my schedule fills up really fast and it's hard for me to get oral skills in. So there's no perfect answer, but I know, I mean, it's often the other aspect of that is like, it's, you want something that you can hand to that person that makes their life easier Yes. rather than being like, I'd like you to create your own examples or I'd like you to, you know, Mm -hmm. use all of these YouTube links, but remember you need to like tune them up slightly so that the student, I mean, exactly. <laughs> these are people who don't have a lot of time. And if it's for a class I'm not teaching, I might not have the time to do all that for them, you know? So there's that whole yeah, added. That's exactly the issue. Right. There's that whole added yes. layer to the problem. This came up when they were writing the review. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was commenting, I said, you know, it just gets me so mad because this is the class we're just most likely to be like, well, who can we find on the street? Like, just, just, you know, let them, te- I'm like, no, you can't do that because it's like, they've got to be able to like, they, not, I'm not saying they don't have the skills to do it. It's just that uh, we're so willing to or administrators often are so willing to farm these courses out to people who just aren't being like you said they aren't being paid enough to spend Mm -hmm. the hours outside of class that it takes to do a really good job you know like writing these projects i mean you know there are some resources but even Mm -hmm. like you know like the um the uh oh the clendenning marvin arl skills Mm -hmm. joel phillips yeah yeah. So like there's some contextual listening in there. And there are some examples of like that, but then even still you have to like tailor it for your students. Mm-hmm. So then you have to like make a little at least that's how it is with mm-hmm. with us. I know that I always even if I find some example somewhere or I find um something in a textbook with oral skills, it's like, well, we haven't quite talked about that yet. That's going to mess them up. So I, I need to ask the question differently or, exp- you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it always takes like all this extra, like um, all these, not machinations. That's the wrong word. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds like I'm an evil overlord or something. <laughs> but it takes like all these, like all just all this extra work, mm-hmm. you know, to tailor it to your students yeah. and um, yeah. 
Yeah. Sometimes I get so, bogged down in that pre-planning process. Like I want to have all of it planned out and do all of it perfectly. And I appreciate my full-time colleague um, that I work with is much more of like a, well, let's create just one and do it. Let's just create one. You know, like if we if we want to do an improv exercise and I'm like, okay, well, we need a plan for how we're going to incorporate improvisation into every single oral skills course and what all the like graded exercises will be that, that you know, gradually build on each other, you know, yeah. and he's like, how about we just write one and try it, <laughs> you know, and that's, a, I mean, the reality is that's kind of this older model, small teaching, right? The reality is like, that's the way that you actually get it done, because if I wait to have the perfect plan, it's probably never going to happen. Um, yeah. or by the time it happens, I'll, I'm still going to have to fix it or tweak it, or I'll learn things along the way. So you may as well just write one and try it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I will say, I feel like all the components that, that we all draw from, they all have their, their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, the softwares are really good mm-hmm. for giving students immediate feedback. It, it told, it tells mm-hmm. you we're flat on that be you know and then there are weaknesses where like you may be you may sing the first measure fine the last measure fine but the middle two bars you were actually an eighth note ahead of the beat but it sounded exactly like the notes that you're looking at and you made only a two out of ten so like the the rubric on these (laughs) softwares is really limiting and then you listen back to it Mm -hmm. if you were to listen to it you think well that was pretty good you know they got a little bit ahead in the middle but uh, that was like, you know, an 8.5 out of 10 or, you know, that was a 9 out of 10. So the rubric, you know, of the automated system or the software engineer is just flawed, it seems, always mm-hmm. to me. Or if you want to not have autonomization, well, how do you not give them autonomization so they can figure out whether it's what mode you're in or, you know, how do I take that part away? Well, I don't know. It just automatically autonomizes you, you know. I mean, there are yeah. flaws to these things that you have to somehow work out, you know, if you're going to create a truly, truly, truly comprehensive RL skills resource. That's, that's such a challenge. And I'm really excited to dig into this review a little bit more deeply uh, and explore uh, what's going on in, in both of these, I should say. It's two um, in both of yeah. them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 Well, Well, speaking of work and all the work that you're doing, you are not just an editor for JMTP, you have also been editing another collection of writings uh, that we're excited to talk with you about. Uh, You have been editing uh, a Rutledge text titled Black Composers in the Music Theory Classroom. And so let's get excited about this. This is another thing to add to your holiday wish list because this is coming (laughs) out soon, right? Right? Yeah, it should be. It should be. Uh, Some places I looked it said it was going to be like December 30th, 2022. And then it also said it's going to have a publication date of 2023. So I don't know. It should be any day now. All right. So, yeah. And the, the main title is actually expanding the canon colon. I tried not to have a colon. I've challenged myself for a long time <laughs> to so not hard. have any titles with colons. It's in our nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It we is. We have a colon. <laughs> 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 it is really hard to to have a title that doesn't do that. Uh, so, you know, um, but anyway, I'm very excited about this. And I can say that, um, you know, it's an edited collection. So there are, I think, 21 chapters. 
including my own, um, that that roughly follow the structure of a kind of typical theory curriculum, you know, in that it starts with theory one type of topics, like easier stuff, like more basic mm -hmm. stuff. I shouldn't say easy, but basic stuff like, you know, like phrases mm -hmm. and cadences and um, intervals <laughs> and stuff like that. And so... Um, the people involved are, they were just outstanding. Like I was telling you guys before we started recording, um, the process, you know, of course I got everybody on board before I submitted the proposal, but, um, you know, the proposal was approved in like, I think February or March, 2021. Mm. And so it was pretty fast mm -hmm. as far as how these things usually go or can go. Um, I think everybody involved was really aware that um, this is a resource that we all need. Mm -hmm. Like everyone who's involved in this wants to have this resource in addition to knowing that, that this is really um, an overdue resource, you know, and hopefully the first of its kind and it'll hopefully be made obsolete by the fact that we're all teaching so much um, such a broad range of um, composers uh, with various representations. So um, it's very exciting. Uh, there's so there's a there's I think five parts if I can re recall. Uh, there's fundamentals and diatonic harmony, and then chromaticism and more advanced approaches, and then form, and then popular music, and then. 20th century and it is really 20th century we don't have any examples from 21st century mm -hmm. um so i decided to just leave that as it is and be very honest about it um but you know there's you know just so many good examples i'm just so excited about it and i have taught a lot of the music and used a lot of the lesson plans that are in the book myself because i've had exclusive access to them <laughs> and so I have been trying them out. Um, so I, you know, I can say that the ones I have used work. So that's always an exciting thing. Definitely. Well, and I mean, we were just talking about contingent faculty. Resources like this help that situation so much because they give people who don't have a lot of time access to materials that are already curated and already ready to use. And that's an advantage easily an advantage yeah. yeah and that's i talked about that a little bit in the introduction that like you know on the one hand people who are facing students day in and day out are are held accountable for the content of a curriculum mm -hmm. but you know depending on their position they may not get credit for spending all this um quote unquote extracurricular time right you know, reinventing everything and, you know, looking up these pieces that they've never taught before and there's no published work on them or very little published work and, you know, very little, um, certainly very little analytical work, you know, I mean, you might, you'll find some biographies, you know, but mm -hmm. is there a whole book on, you know, Harry Burley's piano pieces and settings of spirituals? No. I mean, you can find tons of books on, you know, Wagner and Schubert and Schumann in the 19th century. But um, 
there's like no analytical work on him. And so um, Horace Maxile has a chapter that... Um, Maxile, but yeah. Maxile, thank you very much for correcting me on that. No problem. Um, <laughs> he uh, has a wonderful chapter on um, Francis Johnson and Harry Burley. And I taught the Harry Burley piece that he analyzes in that chapter. And it is just so amazing. Like the students absolutely loved this piece. Mm. Um, it's one of his uh, um, piano pieces and it's called A New Hiding Place. And it quotes several spirituals. And so Horace does just an amazing job of kind of giving you some analytical ways in and helping students think interpretively about like, well, why did he use that as the title? And um, it quotes, uh, my Lord, what a morning, which I didn't know has an alter alternative spelling, morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mm. um, which it, what an evocative possible alternative spelling, mm -hmm. you know? So these are things that, you know, you can just kind of put students in small groups and let them talk about some of these things and, or have them write a paper or a, a, a short um, kind of reaction paper sort of assignment. Um, but it's just some really amazing music that I can't believe as a field we have ignored for that long. It's really, I just don't even have the words. I mean, like <laughs> some of these Florence Price art songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my God, what a gifted song composer. So, so anyway, Hale, I'm very excited about Hale it. Is there Smith in there on the 20th There century is no time? Hale Smith, unfortunately. Uh, so like I said, this is, this is really just an overdue resource. And it's mm -hmm. unfortunately still very incomplete, you know? Like originally I had the idea of having, you know, a section on maybe improvised genres. And I just was having a hard time getting enough of the right kinds of authors, you know, that I needed to make that work. And so eventually I just kind of had to let that go. And, you know, so, so there are things about it that I wish I could have made it more all encompassing, but mm -hmm. I still think it's better, you know, it's, it's still a good resource, you know, but, uh, you know, of course, as the editor, you're always going to be like, well, I, you see all the flaws, right? <laughs> if you're the author or the editor or the performer, <laughs> you know, but uh, anyway, I, I'm very excited about it. Um, Owen Belcher has a beautiful essay on teaching um, 20th century tonality through George Walker's music hmm. and, um, I just cannot wait to dive into that in my 20th century class, or I should say post-1900 class, because um, it is 2022, as we all know. Uh, but I, you know, I, I just can't wait to, to attack some of those chapters um, in the last section. Um, I'm very excited about it, so. Yeah, I think this will be great because I think there is that hesitation just because this is not music that any of us probably even learned mm -hmm. in, in our own college experience. Uh, we don't analyze them. If we're not from, you know, I'm, I'm just a white guy from the Midwest. I'm not from, <laughs> you know, these cultures. And so you also want to make sure that you are doing it 
to the utmost respect <laughs> and, Absolutely. and handling that music the way it should be. And you're not, um, you know, treating them like tokens um, or anything like that. And so the more that we can have these resources gives um, us the, the kind of ability to include these types of musics and do them well and, and, and respectfully as they, as they should be. Absolutely. And that was kind of my whole goal is like, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have like, and of course, I also use these um, burgeoning, ever growing repositories of examples, mm -hmm. like um, the composer diversity database, for example, mm -hmm. sure. is just one. So of course, I also use that all the time. But, you know, these are uh, polished, high level treatments that have been tried out and, you know, and of course, just like with, you know, the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy that, uh, you know, Lee Van Handel's edited collection mm -hmm. that she just won an award mm -hmm. for at right. SMT. Congratulations, Lee, yes. friend of the yes. show. Yes, <laughs> congratulations, Lee. Um, so uh, anyway, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure that we really had uh, good high level treatments of um, some of this music and um, the first chapter is by Teresa Reed. Um, I don't know if you guys know her. She's a former chief reader mm -hmm. of the AP music theory exam. Yeah, I read and for her. She is, yeah, yeah, she is one of my favorite human beings mm -hmm. on the entire planet. Yeah, she's I lovely. adore Teresa Reed. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I wonder if she would be interested in maybe just telling her story. Mm. And so I emailed her and she was like, oh, I'm so busy, but yes, I really want to do it. And so she just, I, I just came up with this absolutely beautiful, heart-wrenching essay. And uh, it was just, she did just an amazing job. And so that's the first chapter. And I, I just feel like that should be required reading for anybody mm -hmm. teaching music theory. Uh, because she talks about what it was like to grow up, you know, in this kind of like Pentecostal tradition where nothing was notated, everything was improvised. Mm. And then to have to learn notation so that she could get the credential, you know, and um, how she felt like she had to kind of like wall off her love of things like gospel music, mm -hmm. you know, and because it just wasn't something that the academy would even talk about. And as you said, it's very important to be, uh, and, and that's one of the things that stops people, I feel like, is mm -hmm. you don't want to do it wrong. Mm -hmm. So then you just don't do anything. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think that we have to kind of be vulnerable with students and say like, look, my PhD program did not prepare me mm -hmm. to have these conversations. And I just think we have to do that or nothing is going to change because we're all too afraid mm -hmm. to like say the wrong thing. And so I, I just started saying that, you know, to my classes and like we we all are going to learn together and and that's OK. And um, and, I, you know, after the George Floyd murder, we had a lot of conversations as a faculty mm -hmm. and with our students, too. And we talked about, we talked with our students and we kind of talked about like the tone of our department and whether, how inclusive are we really and how are our minority students feeling? 
and they felt largely ignored. Mm. And that's just not okay. And um, I mean, needless to say, you know, so, um, and I, and, and that's like, I, I feel like we're a pretty progressive faculty in terms of like wanting to make everyone feel welcome, you know, but mm-hmm. um, so, so anyway, that's something that, um, that I kind of address a little bit in the introduction too, is just, I, I start out by just saying like, I am, um, you know, of all my years in higher education, these are the black composers that I studied. And I named like four. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a paper topic that I chose, you know, Mary Lou Williams. And um, another was Nathaniel Dett, because a colleague wrote a paper on his music mm-hmm. as an undergrad. Oh, me too. He's amazing. And so I was like, gosh, like, why? I mean, we know why structural racism, but um, but like, how can we possibly have gone this long without studying Amazing. like Margaret Wands's songs oh, and too. Florence Price's songs and Howard Swanson? I mean, I just yesterday taught um, Margaret Bonds and Howard Swanson's uh, setting of um, the Negro Speaks of Rivers, which is a Langston mm-hmm. Hughes poem, his first published poem, and. It is such a moving poem and their settings are amazing. And that's actually what my chapter is on is those two settings. Um, And, uh, you know, if you teach some of this music, it also brings in some of the history Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. never been part of our world either in, in, in academia. Like, you know, like we've all studied Bartok Mm -hmm. who, was like the first ethnomusicologist, right? Went into the field and, you know, took actual notation of some of Mm -hmm. these melodies. But we didn't do that for the people in our own country, you know, like for the folk music in our country, you know? And um, so that's some of the, those are some of the things that I talk about a little bit in the introduction. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone everyone in the collection and everyone reading the collection, they all have their own stories. But I felt like I needed to kind of disclose, you know, my limited past. Cause we all, those of us who are PhD music theorists, I suspect we all have a very similar um, story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I will say last semester, the reason why I mentioned Hale Smith was not just because Hale Smith is a, a really nice uh, composer, really skilled American composer, but because oh, I had played wonderful. various, I got on a Hale Smith kick um, from talking to Horace Maxeel, actually. And my students, by the end of the term, could identify Hale Smith pieces in Theory 4. Which was interesting that like Hale Smith was like a part of my miniature Ben Graf canon of Theory Four or something. I don't know, you know, how to word that. Yeah, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying this for the applause. I'm. I'm generally just like saying that like I'm glad that their concept of that 
was based on <laughs> Hale Smith. At least he was a component of that. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought that was cool because I played a piece in, uh, towards the end of the term and that. Mm. You're like, oh, is that by Hale Smith? Well, that's how no, it wasn't like, oh, is that must be by Schoenberg. Exactly. You know what I mean? Right. Like, the, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, like, no, I mean, be, we're not like we're like, not that, that by, but like, know, like it was interesting to hear the, their discussions. are just like, part of the atmosphere. They're just part of the collection. It's not like, oh, this special person from this different, different group. No, it's just. Hale Smith is right there with all these other mm-hmm. composers you, who are just composers. Yeah, you can imagine like this future conversation where a student says, "Wait a minute, you don't know who Hale Smith? How did you take theory four and not not discover yes. who that is?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But that's good. That's how. That's how it happens. Wait a minute, you don't know who Hale Smith. <laughs> Right. That was exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're like, oh, not more Hale Smith. Oh, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. They said That's that, great. and I was well, like, oh is, my gosh, I'm kind of flattered by it. You know, like, you think you're, you think about, you're um, slaying JMTP here, but actually, like, and also that just, comment um, itself the, the is a slay. That you know what I mean? With this, uh, this new book. What's the, what's the official title again? Expanding the Canon, colon, Black Composers in the Music Theory Classroom. Yeah, so add that to your wish list. But before we let you go, though, we always like to ask some rapid-fire questions. Oh, boy. Um, okay. And so, so Jen or Ben, Am do you I have on a... wait, wait, don't tell me? It's starting to feel like wait, wait, don't tell me. That's right. Ben, you go first. You never go first. I'll start. I, I got a great one. Oh gosh, an actual piece? Okay, so you mentioned that you wanted to include 21st century pieces or 21st century hmm. composers, etc. Um, if you could have included maybe well, one thing, what would it have um, been? Anything by, you know, the people I know in the 21st or century are just so recent. Or maybe a collection of like things by Camilla one composer Z or something or, like that. Like what, like what if you could just say, you know what, this really needs and, to be added to, um, uh, I, uh, to the I am including one of her pieces in my counterpoint class, actually, um, just as a part of a final project. Jen, you know about yes, that. Yes, yeah. And... Um, and uh, Jonathan Bailey Holland, who is my good friend from AP Theory Teaching Days, who is an absolutely amazing composer. I um, would love to turn my students onto his stuff. That is that's a great answer. So, but that's why there needs to be like 10 of these kinds of books. Yeah, you know. volume two, but we'll give you a so, break first. Because it was just like, I just, you know. And Routledge is like only a however many hundred thousand words or whatever, and I'm like, <laughs> that's great. No, this is, this is fantastic. That's exactly. Anyway, why I know I it's supposed to be rapid fire, so no, that's okay. That, that was perfect. perfect. <laughs> yep. So here's mine. Write a book or edit a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never written a right, book, right? Other than like my dissertation, which is not a process most no, people want. No, that was great. To, that was pretty rapid. Repeat. That was good. No. You know, <laughs> uh, one of my colleagues is uh, defending her dissertation in about an hour and 15 minutes. So I keep looking at the clock thinking, just a little more time, um, speaking of the dissertation. So for me, I just I loved editing a book. I thought it was really such a collaborative 
process and I learned so much from these amazing contributors. Um, and I, I noticed that on the uh, Rutledge's page for the book, they just listed all the chapters. They didn't have like the authors. And I was, I wrote the series editor and I said, can you, can we just please add all the author names? Cause first of all, like, it looks like I wrote all those and I did not like, especially like the popular music stuff. Like that is, I mean, I like popular music, but I'm not a pop music scholar, like, you know. Um, and so, I mean, the contributors were just absolutely amazing and I learned so much and, um, I loved that process because it's just so collaborative. Um, but I don't know. Well, I love to hear that. I, I, like I've, I said, I've never written a book. Right. I love to hear that because I've heard so many nightmare stories about editing a book. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like that, that your answer is no, editing is great. It's collaborative and fun. You know, I definitely. Like I said, I think, I think we are all very motivated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To get it out there. Yeah. So That's I think right. that was the difference. Um, but I didn't really have anybody who just didn't answer my emails or because I, I do know that happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been the person that people have emailed and said, you're friends with this person, right? Can you get in touch with them for me? And, well, know, that's like, pretty bad. That's like next level bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I didn't have any of that. That's good. Like everybody, everybody got right back to me like very quickly. Oh, that's great. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. So. Uh, that's great. So my question is um, related to your, your work as an editor, and you don't have to name any names. Most common typo in all the things that you've edited over the past year and a half. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this – okay, I, I don't know if I have a common typo, but I have a funny one, and it's not from authors. This is from the um, – when they go through and they do the – hardcore editing like when the publisher does mm -hmm. they did a um they changed our hashtag for hashtag me too sharp me too oh. <laughs> so that was very funny like <laughs> we got a big kick out of that uh the author and i did oh, and so we thought that was funny so I don't know about the co most common typo. I mean, I know all my common typos, like stud nets, yeah. you know, yeah. for students. Yes. And uh, stuff like that. Like, I'm constantly doing, you know, uh. stupid stuff like that. And my computer, like, doesn't even try to fix it for me now, because I think it's like... It thinks or, it's like, a word phone, now. You know? Yeah. Now yes. it thinks it's yeah. a word. That happened I'm like, to me. you're not helping me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Scheudel is mine. It's supposed to be schedule. But... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've yes, done that one. My computer doesn't Shoidle. even fix it. It Shoidle. just will say, you know, my Scheudel this week is really busy. Are you typing in German? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, that's Mine's Univeristi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the R. Univeristi. <laughs> or double thes. Oh, yeah. I have lots of double thes. Yes. Mm, yeah. 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 Well, this has been super fun. So as we wrap up, maybe let um, our listeners know a little bit about where um, they can uh, find you um, online, uh, where you're at, where you're at as far as where you're teaching. Um, if you want to get in touch with you about any of the topics we've talked today. Oh, yes. I teach at Oakland University, which is in Michigan. It is not in Oakland, um, California, the Bay Area. It is very different from Oakland, California, <laughs> because right now we are having a lot of snow. 
Ooh. <laughs> and uh, it's very pretty, but it's horrible. To, I almost died on my way to work today. So, oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so it's in. Uh, it's named for the county. Actually, it's a large regional public school, and we are in Oakland County, Michigan, which is north of Detroit. Yeah, that's where I'm at. And you can email me if you would like. It's just my last name, Hoag, H-O-A-G, at oakland.edu. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.